Hello and welcome, everyone. My name is Nicholas Wittstock. This is the Political Economy Forum podcast. Uh, today's guest is Glory Liu. She's a college fellow in social studies at Harvard University and was previously a postdoctoral research associate at the Political Theory Project at Brown University. She holds a PhD in political science from Stanford University, and her research focuses on the history of political and economic ideas, uh, the political theory of capitalism and inequality. Glory is also the author of a forthcoming book on the reception and influence of Adam Smith in American political thought and political economy. The title of this book is currently under revision, but we will update readers on that as soon as we know more. All right. Hello, Glory. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Glory, first of all, who is Adam Smith? So Adam Smith was a moral philosopher, um, political economist, a political theorist, and public intellectual of the 18th century Scottish Enlightenment. I think most listeners of this podcast will probably recognize Smith's um, popular reputation as the father of economics, the father of free market economics, and oftentimes the father of capitalism. Um, and that discrepancy between what professional scholars recognize Smith as, right, this moral philosopher of the 18th century Scottish Enlightenment, um, an ambitious social scientist, and his much more narrow and popular reputation, somebody associated with what's popularly known as conservative economics, that gap is um, what I study. How and why did Smith become known in this way? Thank you. So was it not always the case that um, Adam Smith was considered the, the father of economics or that, that Adam Smith was even as closely associated with capitalism, whatever, whatever that means? That's right. And in fact, Smith never used the term capitalism. He used the mm -hmm. term commercial society to refer to the internal relations with which a society organizes itself. So people relate on the basis of mutual exchange as opposed to barter or gift exchange or feudal hierarchies or something like that. Now, commercial societies existed all over the world at Smith's time, and Smith was really interested in the kinds of transformations that took place in commercial societies, what brought them about, what made them wealthier, what made them more or less stable, and the kinds of politics that best allowed commercial societies to flourish. And so that's why we understand Smith's project as one of political economy. It's not just about abstract relations and formulas that we associate with modern economics, but it's about the organization of a society, its institutions, that allow its people and the sovereign to flourish. To answer your other question, uh, which is, was Smith always known yes. in this way? Um, the answer is no. So in Smith's time, he would have been known as a moral philosopher. Um, he was a professor of logic and rhetoric and later moral philosophy. Um, and so he taught a wide range of subjects. Now, moral philosophy has um, a different meaning, a slightly different meaning than what we would think of now. So today we think of moral philosophy as predominantly a normative enterprise, right? trying to understand and defend normative principles, what we ought to do and mm -hmm. what justice entails, um, what makes a certain state of affairs better or worse than others. But the term moral in Smith's time was really used in opposition to natural. Right? So you have natural sciences, 
And then you have moral sciences. So those moral sciences are really more like social sciences or psychological sciences. So the moral is the, the psychological and the social. Now, I say that because I think it's important to realize just how capacious and um, broad his field was at the time. So when we say that Smith is a moral philosopher, we're really saying he's somebody who studies the social. He studies the science of man. Mm. Economics, the way we relate to one another through exchange, understanding the determinants of price and value, is one aspect of that science of man. Right? How we come to our moral norms is another aspect of that science of man. What are the principles of law and government? Yet another aspect of the science of man, right? So all of those things are what made um, make <laughs> Smith's kind of reputation as a moral philosopher in his time. So that's what I'll say about, you know, was Smith always known as an mm. economist? No, because in his time, the term economist didn't exist because economics as we know it now was really political economy, which was part of this bigger field of studying kind of man as a whole. Um, what's interesting is that he becomes known as the father of political economy quite early on in the 19th century. Now, Smith isn't the first person to ever study economics at all, right? Mm. People have cared about the science of wealth, mm -hmm. money, things that are broadly categorized as economic questions since Aristotle. But what's interesting is that as political economy develops as an academic field, and people really try to give it scientific value, Smith is widely regarded as the founder because he is among the first to really systematize it and give political economy clear definitions, a clear mm -hmm. structure, and to define its central questions and objectives. And so by the early, I would say the first two, within the first two decades of the 19th century, it's almost universal that Smith is regarded as its founding father. And that really eclipses the broader understanding of Smith as this kind of moral philosopher of the Enlightenment. Right. That's really uh, exactly what I want to speak to you about, right? They, because that's what you describe in your book, right? Like it's part of this process of which Smith is used, Smith is, um, or maybe Smith as a philosopher economist is interpreted in a specific way, in a specific point in time. Mm -hmm. And um, in some way, Smith is almost um, a micro example of a reinterpretation of the eco economic discipline almost. Um, I, I will let you speak to that assertion in just a second. Um, yeah. But I think a lot of the students um, or many students, I think, of, of economics, of political science or, or anyone really who is taking like an intro class to, to either of those disciplines, you know, I think people will be able to associate, or people who've watched The Wire, for example, right? I think there's a great <laughs> scene where uh, uh, where The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith is, is on a bookshelf, right? So I think Adam Smith is associated primarily, I think, with this idea of the wealth of nations, which simultaneously, I think, extends to this idea that economics, political economies, perennial question is, why are some countries rich and others are poor? Right. And then the idea is that, OK, well, Smith has this like very easy formula of saying, well, it's it's the division of labor and the extent of the market. Right. And those are the only things that are relevant. And yeah. um, and period. And that, that's pretty much <laughs> most of what you need to know about Smith. How do you qualify that account in your book? Yeah. 
That's a really great question. So I'm going to start with the last example because it's the most specific and um, I think speaks to the broader phenomenon of reception and mm -hmm. why reception mm -hmm. is important for understanding influence, long-term influence, and why we have certain images and understandings of an author and his ideas and their practical import. So the division of labor, right? This is like the engine of the wealth of nations. And it's in the first chapter of the wealth of nations. And Smith has these really vivid illustrations of the pin factory, the woolen right. coat, right? Ordinary objects. And he suddenly um, unveils the mechanism behind it. Mm -hmm. How is it that we get a pin? How is it that, um, that people can produce 48,000 pins or I forget the exact number as opposed to mm -hmm. 20 in a single day, right? It's a division of labor. And the division of labor, as we know, is limited by the extent of the market. So what's interesting about why certain aspects of Smith's works in The Wealth of Nations um, become kind of whittled down to, oh, the division of labor, oh, um, the invisible hand, is, is that it depends on the demands that readers bring to a text at certain points in certain times. Mm -hmm. So in the early 19th century, American political economists, and I'll, I'll just emphasize here again with a little asterisk that I'm studying the American reception of Adam Smith, right. though there is a much bigger global story and you know similarities and differences across different nations. Um, American political economists are coming to Smith in the early 19th century because they're trying to come up with principles of political economy that suit American conditions. Why? Because up until this point, the major texts in political economy are all coming from Europe. Mm -hmm. And what American political economists realize is that some things like Malthus's, you know, Malthusian crisis point just don't apply, right? Mm -hmm. They're unwilling to accept things like um, Ricardo and Malthus because they think America doesn't look like Europe, right? We have right. way more land, we have way less people. There's a lot more wealth in agriculture. We're not gonna face the point of scarcity, right? And like trade also looks different because our trade relations have a different history than European countries. So what Americans start to do is basically selectively pick and choose which principles they think are universal and also applicable for American circumstances. Right. And one of the things that gets kind of quote, universalized is Smith's division of labor, right? Like right. in the earliest 19th century American political economy textbooks, you see all across the board, professors saying, right, Adam Smith, the division of labor, this is the most important thing, the pin factory, I think recorded in lecture notes over and over and over again. But what's also interesting is that they'll say, well, Smith might've exaggerated things a little bit and oh, don't forget, his distinction between productive and unproductive labor is wrong. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, because according to Smith's definition, clergymen and professors would have counted as unproductive labor. And that clearly wasn't going to go over well in American society. Right. right? So what you see is um, political economists really trying to identify what is true scientifically, like in terms of a universal principle, but constant and, and universal, universal and timeless. And also what makes sense for American circumstances. Um, so that's kind of one very specific example of like, why does the division of labor become so central? Well, it's central because A, it seems very obvious. Smith was very good at illustrating things, but also because subsequent interpreters made it 
kind of essential. They made it into one of the backbones and the pillars of economics. Um, when you start to get to kind of bigger, more complicated topics like trade, right. this is where you see a lot of disagreement among subsequent writers of textbooks, professors, and academic political economists. So there are certain textbooks and writers that are known to be more sympathetic to free trade and others who see trade as, um, or see free trade as a very bad thing. Someone like the German political economist Friedrich List, who comes along and um, has a large American following, um, sees Smith's political economy as dangerous because it is universal. Right. So someone like List encourages us to think that political economy can't be something that's universal or what he calls cosmopolitical, mm-hmm. but has to be national, right? And right. that what's good for the nation can't be understood in internationalist terms, but has to be understood in what we would call now like kind of economic nationalist terms. So you start to see in the kind of early 19th century and into the 1830s and 40s, much more contestation over how political economy's principles operate. And I think that's where you start to see um, people really disputing what of Smith is worth keeping or not. Um, was, wasn't the U.S. always a country that, that uh, was very strongly reliant on trade or was there ever... Was there ever a reading of Smith in the United States that somehow relegated trade as less important as it is maybe um, since the 70s? That's a really good question. And you're right that the primary lens through which um, most American statesmen and also academic political economists are reading Smith, the reason they even go to Smith in the first place is because trade is a national priority mm-hmm. basically since the founding. So Mm -hmm. one of the most important um, interpretations and uses of Smith during the founding era is, of course, Alexander Hamilton's Mm -hmm. um, report on manufacturers and earlier the report on the National Bank and report on public credit. These are early American political economic documents that are using the principles and theories from Smith, everything from like the division of labor to um, the classes of society, the productive classes of society, to how banking works and how money circulates, to um, the, the the kinds of policy instruments that um, protect national industries um, and whether agriculture and manufacture are really at all to one another. These are kind of central questions um, for 18th century political economists and statesmen to be thinking about. Right, the American um, colonies fought this huge war <laughs> of which trade was a huge part. Right. And then immediately after that, they find themselves again in another trade war with the mother country. Um, and so trade really never falls out of the national spotlight. Um, and throughout the 19th century, trade um, is an issue that doesn't die even when slavery dies. Well. Mm. I mean, we can say even after the Emancipation Proclamation, right? So even after the Civil War is over, trade is still one of the most divisive national issues. Before the Civil War, trade and slavery are so intertwined because whether or not you stood on the side for free trade was often um, entangled with whether you believed that a slave economy was definitive of the national economy or not. Mm-hmm. So. 
You're right, right? One of the primary lenses through which we read Smith throughout history is because we're coming with these concerns about what to do about international trade. Is there ever a moment, you know, where the winning coalition changes in some way, right? That (laughs) then creates a different reading of Smith in any way. Like, can we ever see that really? Or is that that not as obvious? Yeah. Okay. So I'll say a couple things here. Um, First, just in terms of the, the variation in terms of how we read Smith, even within the topic of trade um, mm-hmm. is really interesting. So again, to, to talk about people like Hamilton and even James Madison, when they're, when they're turning to the wealth of nations, they're really interested in the substance and the logic of Smith's arguments. Um, and, and one could argue is that because political economy was so nebulous at this time, mm. you really did have to rely on the latest and greatest um, scientific works out there to make the case for national institution building when it came to things like public finance and trade policy. So so people in the late 18th century, right, statesmen and, um, you know, kind of the intellectual elite in America are really gravitating towards Smith for the substance of his arguments. Smith is really a resource in that sense. Mm-hmm. By, the, by the late 19th century, the substance of Smith's arguments don't matter that much at all. What people care about is Smith as a slogan. Smith is the father of free trade, right? We must follow the dictates of Smith, who is the founder of political economy, and this is what Smith says about free trade. So they don't care. um, I'm talking about they being legislators here. Mm. Legislators don't care so much about the substance of Smith's arguments. They care that he is on their side. And what's interesting is that protectionists do the same thing too, right? And they try to delegitimize the consistency of free trade arguments by invoking certain passages of Smith where Smith makes exceptions to free trade. So they'll say things like, look here, even the father of free trade himself grants us this exception to trade. You know, the home market is the most important market of all. And they'll quote from the Wealth of Nations. So Smith in those situations, again, is providing less the substance and the logic of an argument and more acting as a totem or a slogan or an icon, right? Somebody that has political value if you have him on your side. And we see that pattern established really early on in the 19th century. It comes into high relief (laughs) um, in the late 19th century. And um, it kind of changes its tone in the 20th century because um, you know, kind of post-trade liberalization, <laughs> international mm-hmm. trading regimes, um, the, the United States isn't so much interested in trade liberalization as they are in this in the question about kind of domestic free enterprise. But, and I'll say more about that later. Mm. Um, you're, the other version of the question that you asked, which is, do we see variations in how Smith is read? Like, aren't there times when we don't care so much about trade, right? Don't we care about other things, like maybe labor, corporate mm. power? Absolutely. Um, there are two instances that I'll highlight, and I talk about these more at length in my book and another work. Um, John Adams is a really interesting character in the late 19th century, or sorry, late 18th century. Um, in a series of essays called The Discourses on Davila, he actually repurposes entire, an entire chapter of Smith's theory of moral sentiments to talk about what he worries um, is sympathy with the rich and the rise of oligarchic power in America. 
Right. So what he's really interested in are the social psychological forces at work that Smith describes in the theory of moral sentiments and how those forces might reinforce a social oligarchy, right? That, that even if we keep the wealthy out of power through official political channels, we will nevertheless merely divert their influence into the social sphere. And that was really worrying for John Adams. Um, and what he did with Smith's theory was to, again, deploy it in a way to advance a social critique of um, oligarchic power in America. Um, so I describe this in a little bit more detail in my book, but the person you should really read on this is Luke Mayville, um, whose book, John Adams and the Fear of American Oligarchy digs into this a bit more. It's really fascinating. So there you have an instance where John Adams is really kind of bucking the trend. <laughs> He's a bit of a weirdo in terms of the, the trends in American political thought at the time. And I think it's a really interesting contrast to how people like Hamilton, for example, are really gung-ho about Smith's political economy and the theories that would enrich the nation, right? John Adams is really worried about <laughs> the kind of commercial forces and what the influence of wealth would do for American society. So the, the, that's kind of two, uh, that's an instance where you have contrasting readings of Smith that I think are worth highlighting because they show um, different ways of reading and different ways of conceiving Smith's influence in America. Another instance is in the late 19th century. Um, this is a very turbulent time. Um, both in terms of the profession of economics and also wider American societies. So you have widespread labor violence. Um, you have the rise of robber barons, like the Rockefellers and the Carnegies. Um, it's the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era. So there's a lot of um, demographic change. There's a lot of political and social unrest. And within economics, there's a big dispute about whether economics should be directed towards ethical and social ends or whether it should stick to um, abstract theorizing and really sticking to kind of scientific principles. One of the leaders of the more progressive wing, um, Richard T. Ely, um, was advocating for this ethical approach to economics and he and um, other colleagues like E.R.A. Seligman, I believe it's Edwin Robert, anyway, um, <laughs> he and his colleagues um, who were born of this generation of economists who actually received their graduate training in Germany, came back to the United States and were really dedicated to um, making economics ethical again, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase. And um, this got them into quite a difficult position. Um, Ely, for example, um, was the center of the first academic freedom dispute because he supported the socialist movement. And this, of course, scared the academic administration at the University of Wisconsin. And so he was quote, put on trial. Um, and this is the birth of academic freedom in the United States. But all of this is to kind of put a little background um, on why Smith is being read in the way that he was being read at that time. So this is like the 1890s. Um, what people like Ely and Seligman and a man named William Caldwell at the University of Chicago were doing was they were trying to show that um, Adam Smith believed 
that labor was the most important part of the economy, right? Right. The labor theory of value shows that Smith believed labor was the most important thing. Um, and at this point, people all over the world knew that the labor theory of value was wrong. But what these men were trying to do was show that, that Smith had humanitarian aims in mind when he was conceiving of the science of political economy, right? Um, and that Smith really was worried about conflict between laborers and employers, masters and apprentices. And so their rereading of Smith as this kind of progressive, labor-minded, humanitarian economist is pushing back against what they see as a trend towards um, not necessarily like amoral or immoral capitalism, but a trend towards kind of scientific detachment, right? And they really believe that as economists, they had a duty to attend to the greatest social ills of their time. Interesting, because I mean, at the time, also the German historical school of economics, right, was yes. like relative. Yeah, yeah. Purchase. So, so this generation of American economists, like you, they're called the new generation, mm-hmm. um, and they're predecessors to the institutionalists. Um, mm. They get all of their historical training from the historical mm. school in Germany, and they come back and they bring historicism <laughs> to the U.S. That's and they, you start to see the proliferation of courses in German German political economy in the US in the in the late 19th century. Um, and what I noticed, um, and I really get into the weeds <laughs> in, in the book about this, is that um, these American progressive economists adopt the like historical schools philosophy of, of you know situating politics and situating economics historically but they reject the historical school's reading of smith right so the his, the, the mm. german germans think that there's this adam smith problem right that smith was basically like egoism incarnate um and even though these american schools uh, these these american economists go to germany and they like drink the historical, the historicist Kool-Aid, they actually don't believe in what was then called Smithianismus, right? This like Mm. caricature of Smith as like capitalism unleashed and egoism. They actually see Smith as a progressive economist, Mm. (laughs) which is not at all what the German economists think. So one important thing that I think we should talk about is the Wealth of Nations published in 1776. It's Uh so weird to me when I read... um, your work and it really just like the 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 parallels are so obvious right that it seems like for american academia for american economists for for legislators for for public policy thinkers it really appears as if uh the wealth of nations is this like by like this it's sort of a byproduct or it is a book that exists sort of um, in parallel to the u.s constitution almost where like if you want to say anything about Mm -hmm. economics you're going to have to ground it in this work and you're going to have to, like, as you are effectively pointing out, you're going to have to reinterpret what is written here. You're going to have to stress different things, right? Which just extremely mm-hmm. uh, reminds you of reinterpretations of certain sections of the U.S. Constitution. I'd love for you to speculate on the question of how Smith became this, to have this, like, prophetic status where where his work is really the standard that you, like, you're going to have to, like, ground your argument in Smith if, if we're going to give you any hearing. So there's... um a really specific answer Mm -hmm. and then there's a kind of broader answer so let me start with the specific one and i spoke about this earlier 
Um, Smith's quasi-prophetic, or at least founding father status, really emerges mm. in the early 19th century. And it has to do with the establishment of academic political economy. So political economy used to be just this nebulous mode of inquiry, uh, uh, another branch of the science of the legislator. That's how Smith put it, right? It's, it's a branch of statesmanship. It's a way of understanding the forces at work that enrich a nation, that enrich the people, that enrich the sovereign, and a set of tools to help you understand how to you know, um, collect taxes and build public works and defend your country. Political economy as a branch of statesmanship is very different from academic political economy that tries to give it scientific value, that mm -hmm. turns it into something with universal, constant, scientifically grounded principles. As that emerges in the 19th century, people need to appeal to what has been done before. Um, and they're constantly in conversation with, systematically critiquing and updating the most important works like Smith's. Mm. But also you have to throw in there people like Malthus, Ricardo, mm. and later John Stuart Mill. But Smith never really leaves right that status as, uh, he, he never really leaves his position on that pedestal as the father. Mm. Um, at some point, Smith really is just that, right? He is there because he's a historical landmark. And you want to reference Smith to not only show that you read your Smith, which most people don't these days, but I think more importantly, to signal whose side you think Smith is on in terms of the politics of political economy, right? Whether you think that the principles of free trade are true and therefore imply a certain set of policy tools that you think a nation or a state should adopt. Mm -hmm. um, but also in terms of the kind of academic legitimacy or street cred, right? You want to show how far your science, your ideas, and your principles have progressed since Smith's time. So by the late 19th century, 1876, 100 years after The Wealth of Nations is published, um, you have people like Charles, Charles Franklin Dunbar, political economist at Harvard, praising the, the Wealth of Nations as you know, the founding text of the science, but in a way in which he really sees it as like, a museum piece, right? Like mm. we wouldn't exist were it not for this iconic text and look how far we've come. Now Dunbar believed that American economics was actually in a pretty precarious position. He thought that they, that American political economists paid too much attention to practical concerns like labor and social movements um, and, you know, practical policy things like what to do with railroads. And he was more interested in abstract theorizing. And so he was really mm. trying to push for a return to political economy as a true science, where you would theorize the abstract principles of you know, wealth and price and value and whatnot. Um, I am not an expert in Dunbar's academic career, but what I want to say with that is that um, Smith, Smith's value as a historical object um, played such an important role, not mm -hmm. only in giving legitimacy to economics mm -hmm. as it evolved from the 18th century to where it is now, but Smith as a historical object served important political purposes as well, right? Because if you could 
make the case, as many people have done, that Smith's ideas supported a specific political goal or a specific policy, now you have the backing of the father of the science of economics on your side. And that was not just a rhetorical tool, but it was an important, I think, signaling device Mm -hmm, (laughs) that mm -hmm. that your arguments are stronger because they are supported by Adam Smith. You describe this process in in your work of uh, the the Chicago Smith or the creation Mm -hmm. of the Chicago (laughs) Smith. And I think this might be one of probably the best known schools of thought in economics, right? Especially for for, for people who who are not necessarily like uh, academic economists or um, intellectual historians, right? Like the Chicago School of Economics, I think people have heard that before, right? Uh, I feel like when you hear things like Chicago School and neoliberalism, like people are going to start some sort of manifesto, right? (laughs) I feel like if those two (laughs) sentences are in the same... uh, if those two words in the same sentence, right, like people are immediately going to complain about something. Um, could you describe maybe, yeah, what happened there? Like, who is the, what is the Chicago School of Economics? And what role does Adam Smith play in neoliberalism? Very contested, right? And when okay. there's a contest, when there's a fight, it's worth investigating. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we do as intellectual historians. We find the fight and we describe what's at stake. So I think the Chicago School of Economics in my research is a, it's an intellectual network um, that emerges in the mid 20th century after the Great Depression and really develops in the post-war period, um, centered around a core set of economic and political commitments. One is price theory. This is the big methodological commitment that prices signal what consumers want to buy and what producers want to produce. And the price mechanism is the most um, efficient way of allocating resources. The second and kind of political commitment has to do with um, an aversion to what we call planning, right? Mm -hmm. Centralized planning. The Chicago School economists from Frank Knight to Jacob Viner to Henry Simons, Uh, George Stigler, Milton Friedman are probably more familiar household names. And of course, the kind of Chicago school hanger arounder, (laughs) Friedrich Hayek, who was with the Committee on Social Thought, um, all shared a deep skepticism of centralized planning in a variety of forms, but importantly, to different degrees. And there was a lot of internal dispute over what exactly they meant by Mm -hmm. planning Um, who was going to do the planning, how much, and um, obviously um, through what means. Mm -hmm. So that's how I would characterize the Chicago School in the broadest terms. Again, I just want to say there's a lot of scholarship on this. Um, Mm -hmm. Ross Emmett, Stephen Medema are some of the great big names out there for more of the historiography on the Chicago School. But for my purposes, what's interesting to me about the Chicago School and Adam Smith is that I think they do something really transformative to Smith's reputation in America. And to understand how and why that happened, um, we we can't just look at Milton Friedman wearing his Adam Smith tie. (laughs) We have to look at why Milton Friedman was reading Smith and worked with Smith in the way that he did in the context that he did. And that's why I talk about the Chicago School. Um, So back to, 
you know, what's the connection there then? If it's not just, you know, Milton Friedman, charismatic public intellectual, um, libertarian economist doing his thing, what's the deeper story? And I think the deeper story is that um, what the Chicago School was doing was providing um, a, a node in a really powerful international network trying to recover a version of neo, uh, trying to recover a version of liberalism that had a social philosophy, that had a kind of scientific, rational economic philosophy underpinning it, and a set of political ideas, right? And this was a social philosophy that was opposed to planning, that was very pro-market, and um, evolved into something that I think a lot of people want to call neoliberalism now. Um, they did use the term neoliberalism. I'm again gonna just put a giant footnote here and say mm -hmm. like, there's a lot of historical debate around why they chose that term neoliberalism, the different meanings of neoliberalism, the different meanings of liberalism right. at the time. But let me just bracket that conversation right now and just say, you know, what happened to the Chicago school in the kind of post-war period, I think a lot of people associate with neoliberalism today, right? The kind of market supremacy mm -hmm. um, and a kind of politics of extreme deregulation. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I want to say that in as neutral terms as possible right now, right. Um, but, but recognize that this is an extremely contested term. So um, with the kind of social philosophy of this new liberalism that economists at the Chicago School are trying to create, in concert with things like the Mont Pelerin Society, Adam Smith <laughs> becomes this really recognizable, really mm. convenient and really powerful icon because not only does he have the uh, established authority, right, of centuries of recognizability, everybody knows who Adam Smith is at this point, right? He's the father of economics, but not only is he the father of economics, he's the father of a certain type of economics. And what type of economics is that? It's the economics of price theory. Why? Because the invisible hand can be cast as the price mechanism. And right. so what we, what we see people like George Stigler and Milton Friedman doing is saying and justifying that the type of scientific approach to economics is undergirded, indeed supported and anticipated by somebody like Adam Smith, has lasted <laughs> and endured the test of time and is also fit for American circumstances in the 1960s and 1970s, right? They're advocating pretty firm and aggressive um, policies of deregulation. Um, and I think they, they very much see that anticipated in Smith's works. What's interesting, and of course ironic, <laughs> if you're a Smith scholar, is that, um, Smith wasn't interested in attacking government per se, right. right? Which is what Stigler and Friedman are often accused of doing. Smith was attacking merchant interests, what we would call kind of private corporations or economic interest groups for capturing the government um, and Growing bending, yeah, exactly. And bending state interests to do their will. Um, so why is it that Stigler and Friedman and kind of what we would call Chicago um, descendants or adherents to the Chicago School interpretation of Smith think that Smith was anti-government? You know, it's really peculiar. Mm. Um, 
I, I noticed this in like one essay that Milton Friedman wrote in 1976 called Adam Smith's Relevance for His Time, but it's really sneaky the way Friedman did this, right? He basically said, you know, Adam Smith was against monopolies like, um, oh, the merchant interest and whatnot, but we can extend this to the monopoly of bureaucracy, right? And he basically just says, well, and let's include government in that too. And this is an extension, of course, of um, public choice theory that was also gaining ascendancy at the time, but it's really sneaky, right? And so um, the last thing I'll say about the Chicago School and Adam Smith, I wanna resist the idea that the Chicago version of Adam Smith is quote, a misinterpretation or a right. wrong reading of Adam Smith. Um, and I know I might ruffle some feathers there and make, people some, make some people's hair stand on their end, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that there are some things that are actually kind of consistent with what Smith actually says. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then there are other things that aren't consistent with, with, with what Smith says. Um, and this is kind of the, this is the rub, right? Of interpreting mm. Smith and adjudicating subsequent interpretations of Smith. Smith is such a complex thinker, right. right? He says one thing at one time, then he'll make an exception or concession at another time. You think he's saying one thing, but actually you're reading a subsequent interpretation of what somebody yeah. said Smith said. And so it's very difficult to actually um, parse out what is considered a legitimate interpretation of Smith and what's not. Because it often depends on what you think Smith's yeah. intentions are and what the right way of reading Smith is. Now, it's very clear that the Chicago economists like Stigler and like Friedman, even Frank Knight and Jacob Viner, who had much more complicated views of Smith, their goal is not to present the authoritative version of Adam Smith, right? Adam Smith in his own time. Let me tell you what Adam Smith said in the 18th century. No, right. their goal is to rationally reconstruct their own scientific and economic agenda right. um, that's contiguous with their interpretation of Smith. Is that a fair way of using Smith? Fine. Yeah. Um, but um, I think what we find problematic about it, we, I say, as you know, a, a Smith scholar trained in political theory and intellectual history, um, What's problematic about it is not necessarily its um, consistency or inconsistency with Smith's author authorial intentions, but what ends up being done in Smith's name. Earlier, you mentioned John Adams, who um, in an essay referred to the, um, to the other big work of Adam Smith, right, which is the uh, theory of moral sentiments. Could you first of all speak a little bit more to the second big work of Adam Smith that is mentioned much less frequently than the Wealth of Nations? Sure. Yeah. So the theory of moral sentiments was Adam Smith's first work published in 1759. And it's a work of moral science. So mm -hmm. what Smith was really interested in was trying to understand and describe how it is that um, human beings learn moral behavior. Um, and again, as I mentioned earlier, moral here is, is something more like social or psychological, not just right and wrong. But the core idea for Smith was that it's through sympathy, right, by being able to see each other, by being able to imagine ourselves in another's position, we evaluate moral situations through that imaginative exchange. Mm -hmm. And that is how we um, 
come to understand our moral sentiments, again, our kind of social or psychological sentiments, whether it's joy or sorrow, sharing pain with another person, um, happiness, imagining ourselves being wealthy, imagining ourselves being poor, um, experiencing resentment, um, understanding what justice is, um, and also the nature and character of virtue. Right? Mm -hmm. These are all topics that are covered in the theory of moral sentiments. Um, and so the thing that I want to really emphasize is that this is a work that's both descriptive, but has normative content without necessarily right. being um, instructional or didactic. Right? Smith is not laying down the 10 steps to living a good life, although one can read it as giving us insights into what makes human beings flourish mm -hmm. um, in terms of their social relations, but it is not necessarily a kind of prescriptive didactic work. Right? Smith was really interested right. in uncovering general principles like a scientist would of mm -hmm. what it is that makes humans tick. I think the important element of the uh, theory of moral sentiments is really the there is an immense importance of moral philosophy to economics as a as an academic discipline historically um, or, or just in terms of like its intellectual history. And I think I want to put the plug here for an, a podcast that we did a little bit earlier this year, which uh, made a similar point. I think the way that I read your work is really um, the, uh, the, that you put a lot of um, emphasis on the fact that uh, economics, I think, is easily confused with an objective science of societal prosperity or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, at the base of a lot of uh, the policy prescriptions are all, that, that come out of uh, academic economics, there are always uh, trade-offs and, and certain moral or normative choices, right, that you can't really just sweep under the rug, right? I think they're always implicit in some way. So yeah, earlier this month, we had uh, Mark Ellen Smith on the podcast, who was making a yeah. similar argument that that science does not really solve political problems or, or problems of public policy, rather, right? Like science cannot really replace some sort of inclusive, uh, deliberative process uh, through, yeah, in the political process to try to sort out, well, what decision do we want to make, right? Like science cannot tell you objectively, this is the better decision. I mean, in a lot of situations, having scientific insight will inform you and uh, enable you to make a better decision to possibly quantify trade-offs more accurately. But that does not mean that the conclusion is always obvious. And I think the, the way that I read your work is really to, to re-emphasize a very similar argument in the context of economics as a discipline. I want to encourage us to challenge this idea that economics has always been, is, and ought to be an objective, value-neutral thing. Right. Because first of all, it hasn't been. <laughs> and second of all, I think we delude ourselves into thinking, as you said, that economics as a social science is can operate outside of political and philosophical commitments. That doesn't mean in any way uh -huh. that economics has no value or that it can't be scientific or that mm -hmm. it can't provide us with really important guidance. I will be the first to admit, you know, I started off my degree wanting to be an economist because I wanted to believe in the kind of scientific validity and strength of economic principles and how they could guide policy. And I think a lot of people enter into economics for exactly those reasons. I fully respect that. But what my work tries to show is that 
a lot of the history of political economy, um, which then became economics, is really entangled with and can't be separated from the political and often moral commitments of the people mm -hmm. who are trying to shape the enterprise. Right. At the same time, I want us to also think really critically about efforts to, quote, make economics moral again. Right. <laughs> and, and here I'm gesturing to both historical as well as contemporary efforts um, to construct a political economy, a, a way of thinking or you know, a set of principles that somehow has a, a kind of moral basis in, in the hopes that we can make capitalism defensible on moral grounds, not just scientific grounds, right? But that, that markets are defensible on moral grounds, that, that a free market society is defensible on moral grounds. Right? This effort has stretched back many, many, many years in history. And what I find so interesting about this is the way in which Smith, again, is corralled into this discussion right, that there is this tendency to read back onto Smith mm. our own pressing concerns, right? We want right. to make political economy a moral science again. So let's mm -hmm. smush the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations together and make a claim that Smith's political economy was in fact an extension of his moral science in the theory of moral sentiments. Of course, there is a version of that integration of his moral philosophy and his um, political economy that um, is uh, a response to what was known as Das Adam Smith problem in the 19th century, right? That these two works were somehow fundamentally incompatible, mm. that Smith changed his mind somewhere between writing the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations. That now has been thoroughly disproven, but I think there is a new version of Das Adam Smith problem. And um, I also want to give a shout out to my colleague, Paul Sagar, who's um, at King's College London. Um, who also has this idea, right? There's this new Adam Smith problem that we're wrestling with, which is to say that somehow political economy and, and especially kind of capitalist political economy is fundamentally morally compromised. And our goal is to, is to make capitalism less morally compromised and defend it on moral grounds. And how do we do that? Well, let's see how Smith did it. And I think we're in danger of doing harm to Smith, actually, by reading Smith in that way, and, and also misleading us to think that we can defend capitalism on moral grounds. Um, and, and so that's where I think this discussion of what is political economy? What kind of an enterprise is it? What, what ways of thinking does it lend itself to? Right. Um, and what is its relation to politics and to moral philosophy as other compatible, or in some cases, maybe incompatible ways of thinking. Um, and, and right now, I think we're having, we being scholars across political economy, political theory, and, and economics, and many other social scientists are having a really hard look at ourselves right now, thinking about, you know, how are our fields talking to one another? And how can we respond to what we see as major crises of capitalism, whether it's, right. 
you know, um, skyrocketing inequality, um, stagnating wages, the rise of corporate power, surveillance capitalism, capitalism mm-hmm. and climate change, right? Mm-hmm. These are really tough issues that can't be solved by economics alone. So we're once again returning to, I think, this, this is a bit cliche at this point, but it's a perennial question, right, mm-hmm. of, of how we bring our moral commitments to political economy, right. not just as not just as a field, right, but as a way of thinking, a way of framing problems. Yeah, but also as as policymakers, for sure. I think you can make a very persuasive case to um, defend, you know, capitalism, or I don't know what that really means, but um, <laughs> you know, like free market exchange on moral grounds, right? But I think. I never, I mean, I completely agree, right, at the same time, or I think even even that statement implicitly confirms what you just said, right, which is that not all policy choices will have the same merit. And economics as a science is, is, you know, one endeavor of trying to sort out, well, what are the different implications of different economic policies, for example? As you said earlier, right, it's a delusion to think that this is somehow value neutral. This is a deeply moral endeavor, right? And, and to pretend like you can somehow leave that uh, out the door, I think is, is really, yeah, that, that's just simply untrue, right? And um, <laughs> returning to this point you made earlier, when you were uh, quoting or speaking about John Adams, who was referring to the uh, theory of moral sentiments when he was making the case that, you know, it is not just was with um, how do you create political institutions that avoid tyranny, but also avoid corrosion over time, right? And I think it's really interesting that that you point to this instance, right, where John Adams very explicitly points out, you know what, it's not just, it, this doesn't just uh, happen within the political process, right? But there are broader social and economic processes that may create certain, um, in this case, very ephemeral variables or factors or developments that he described that may uh, ultimately corrode political institutions. Could you speak a little bit more to this concern that John Adams was describing? Absolutely. Um, so, First, let me just say a few things about this series of essays because (laughs) they're a bit obscure. Um, So the discourses on Davila um, were a series of essays that John Adams wrote between 1790 and 1791. And what he intended was actually just a straight translation and commentary of um, Enrico Caterno Davila's um, history of the civil wars in France. Davila was a 17th century Italian historian writing about 16th century French civil wars, right? So, so we're getting pretty in the weeds here. It's like, why is John Adams doing this? Right? John Adams was a very introverted, um, kind of nerdy, bookish founding father who was very obsessed with his reputation and his legacy, right? He even admits this. He's like, I'm kind of obsessed with sanity. And so what he's doing is he's kind of channeling his concerns about American society through reading, translating, and commenting on um, the history of civil wars. And he kind of abruptly transitions um, about, what is it, like 14 essays through. Um, Adam suddenly is like, you know what? We need to understand the human psyche. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and, And he starts 
going down this rabbit hole of talking about things like emulation, vanity, mm-hmm. and ambition, mm-hmm. things that he sees his colleagues really expressing and, and forces that are pervading American society at the time. Um, one thing that's really that really stands out, I think, is the way in which he talks about the corrosive effects of wealth. And this is something that you mentioned in the question. And I thought we should just, you know, really pinpoint what's going on here, right? So wealth, according to Adams, attracted the attention of mankind, right? And um, he's paraphrasing a passage from Smith's theory of moral sentiments, where, you know, Smith says, why is it that a rich man glories in his riches? Why is it that we try to avoid poverty? It's because wealth attracts the attention of mankind, right? And mm-hmm. and being a poor man, you're out of sight. Nobody even recognizes you. You might as well crawl into your own hovel. And Adams really picks up on that social psychological mechanism, right? It's the passion for distinction, the need for recognition right. that makes wealth so powerful. It's not just what money buys. It's not just that you get more stuff. It's that you get more distinction. You get more recognition. So merely keeping the wealth out of buying political office isn't going to solve the social problem of wealth, right? Because the ult- because the ultimate problem is that wealth as a source of power attracts the attention of mankind, right? The wealthy will continue to use their wealth in ways that will garner them, make them fashion. You know, they, they'll, they'll, they'll be trendsetters. They can easily sway opinion. Um, right. People will follow them, right? They will yeah. want to follow the attitudes, the um, opinions, the desires and ambitions of the rich. And that is what made wealth so problematic. So the direct quote from Adams is, Riches attract the attention, consideration, and congratulations of mankind. The other thing that I'll say is that Adams really does extend Smith's analysis from the passage that he's working with in the theory of moral sentiments. And um, the reason why it's a really interesting extension is because Adams digs into this kind of core epistemic issue at hand, right? Like Adams was interested in how is it that we figure out who's the man of true merit, right? Like who is the guy that's really wise and virtuous and deserving of our attention versus the guy we think is deserving our attention because he's wearing fancy clothes and driving a fancy car and like is really wealthy and on the cover of, you know, Forbes. Um, So this is a deeply epistemic problem for Adams because um, his claim, which is again, an extension of Smith at this point, because the last edition of the theory of moral sentiments hasn't come out yet, we can bracket that. But what Adams does is basically really highlight how difficult it is for us to distinguish our admiration of wealth versus our admiration of the truly kind of virtuous um, man of real merit. Um, And that's something that's really interesting because we are still struggling with this problem today, right? Think about the ways in which our meritocracy is merely tracking Um, the distribution of wealth and income in the society. So I think Adams was really hitting on something um, important and difficult, namely to really figure out how it is that we disentangle wealth as a source of power in the kind of 
pure political sense, right? Like, can you just buy offices versus wealth as a form of power that buys you influence, respect, commands attention, and shapes norms? This is an amazing question. Um, no idea uh, <laughs> what, what, what to do about that. Oh, and of course, Adams is getting this from Adam Smith. Of course, yeah. Who else? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. That's what we forget, right? Exactly. Like the thing that I think is worth highlighting here, since this is ultimately about Smith and political economy, is that on the popular interpretation of Smith, this is not at all what we expect somebody like right. Adam Smith to write. This is an incredibly complicated question. I'm not really sure uh, to what extent this is really a problem that you can fix in any meaningful sense of the term. I'll just say like one last thing on this question of wealth um, the problems of wealth, inequality in contemporary society, and how we interpret Smith in mm -hmm, response to mm -hmm. these questions and, yes. and Smith's practical import. Um, so I don't have a direct answer, but I think if I um, highlight some of the different ways of reading Smith, um, specifically in response to this question about the morality of wealth, mm -hmm. um, I'll be able to allude to something about the kind of continual importance um, and, and contestation around Smith. Political theorists have been really concerned with inequality for mm -hmm. good reason. Um, and for among those who study Adam Smith, we've been really interested in what Smith had to say about inequality, right? Mm -hmm. If he's the father of economics and the father of capitalism, right. the father of a guy who invented the science of wealth, surely his mm -hmm. ideas about inequality whether it's natural or whether it's problematic and how to fix it, surely we should care, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there's been a really important trend uncovering how Smith um, described the problematic nature of um, sympathizing with the rich along mm -hmm. the ways in which you know, John Adams was talking about it um, and, and how our sympathies could be distorted when wealth inequality is really high, right? We tend to follow the um, interests of the rich and ignore the poor. And this was um, fundamentally disruptive for the way we related to one another as equals. Um, and here I'm really um, summarizing the great work by theorists like Dennis Rasmussen and, and Ryan Hanley, among many other scholars. Now, what's at stake here, right? So. If we think that Smith's contribution to this question of inequality is fundamentally that of a moral theorist, right? we look to the theory of moral sentiments and yes, to the wealth of nations, but ultimately, if what is really problematic about inequality is that it degrades our morals, mm. then the problem is now one of morality. But here's the other thing, right? It's not just about morality. It's not just that the mechanism, the social psychological mechanism that makes us sympathize with the rich and ignore the poor is a problem from the standpoint of morality. It's a problem for the nature of politics, mm -hmm. right? Because what does Smith talk about in book four of the wealth of nations? Well, book four of the wealth of nations opens with this story of how people in positions of economic advantage um, end up dazzling legislators, duping them into passing legislation that oppresses the public but promotes the interest of what we would now call corporate interests, right? So this is the story of how wealth as a form of political authority, not just something that is kind of 
um, prone to distort our moral dispositions. But wealth as a um, source of political authority mm. um, is problematic for commercial societies and how they operate. Right? So is the problem of wealth and inequality a moral problem or is it a political problem? Right? Right. And yet I'm sure you can see how this would be extremely relevant to how we think about the problem of inequality in America today, right? So obviously the answer is like, well, it's both. <laughs> Clearly it's both. But whether we see Smith as somebody who fundamentally approaches problem from the perspective of a moral scientist or somebody who was really interested in the nature of politics and, and the peculiar way in which wealth determined political authority, right? we have a very different picture of Smith himself and what he was up to. Well, I'm sure you'll answer all of these questions when your book comes out. Well, Glory Lou, thank you so much. It was thank great you to have for you having me. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com.